Right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Happy Sunday. Happy Daylight Savings. Saving. Haha. Uh, time to you all. Um, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If it's your first Sunday, glad to have you. Uh, we are in the book of Acts right now as a church, and so we're kind of towards the beginning still. If you know where that is, that is in the Bible, go ahead and turn there if you want to follow along or on a phone app. All of it's all on screen, though, too. And part of it's in your, um, your worship folder in that sermon insert, and I think the Pew Bible page number's on there, too, just to kind of help you find it uh, if you need that. Uh, but Acts, uh, just to catch you up very briefly on what Acts is, Acts is one of the 27 books of the New Testament. It is the last narrative book, genre-wise, that we have in the Bible, and it's a book about Jesus, ultimately. It's a book about him and his grace and his pursuit of lost sinners like us. And particularly, it's about the birth of his church. So on one level, we would say every book in the Bible is about Jesus ultimately, so that's kind of a general thing that Acts is not unique you know, to, but it is unique with the story of the birth of the church. The church is Christians, a gathering of Christians. Uh, it is God's uh, new holy spiritual temple, which is people like us that gather together and believe the same things about him and uh, worship him and, and just enjoy his presence and, and dine with him and remember him and, and, all the, and many more things as well. But the church is a gathering of people, not a building. So it's a story about the birth of, of the first church in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and how it expanded out. Uh, and at this point in the story, we're already doing that. We're seeing it go past the Judean province and it's going to keep going further and it's going to spread throughout the Roman Empire, ultimately all the way to Rome, which is how the book ends. That's significant. We'll come to that uh, in like December. So <laughs> it's a little ways off, but uh, we'll, we'll see how it kind of traverses through uh, Asia Minor and Greece and so forth all the way to, to Rome. Lots of cool stories to get to yet in the series. But Acts, uh, and this is an encouragement to, to just to think this way when you think about narrative in the Bible. Acts is, uh, like any narrative section of the Bible, theology by way of history. So it's theology first, but by way of, of history. So what that means is it's telling us what happened, but more than that, it's also telling us how it happened. And in that way, helps us understand God. So theology literally means the study of God. And so we're going to see that uh, play out in narrative uh, today here as well. And so today, we pick up, remember, after the church has been scattered from Jerusalem due to persecution. That was a couple weeks ago. We read about that, saw that. And we've been following uh, Philip's, essentially Philip's adventures in, in Samaria, which is a province north of Judea. So it's kind of this initial um, you know, spread of the gospel to in this case, the Samaritans are kind of half-breeds or half-Jews, so kind of Jews, kind of not. And today it's going to go uh, to a, another unique individual, an Ethiopian, actually, an East African. So it's the first time a Gentile is kind of really receiving uh, the, the gospel. It's really cool. So Philip is a Jewish Christian who has been evangelizing the region. So if you haven't been here, at least understand that. This is a book about Jesus. We'll, we'll learn from his grace. We'll see God's character here. We'll learn theology, again, by, by way of, of history uh, here. Uh, but Philip, also understand Philip is a Jewish Christian who's just been evangelizing uh, the many towns in the province of, of Samaria. All right, so that's a brief recap. Let's read Acts uh, 8, 26 to 40. Today is Philip, and again, the Ethiopian eunuch is the guy who is uh, going to convert today. So he's not a Christian, um, and then the Spirit's going to use Philip to, um, to save him. So really cool story. Acts 26, or sorry, 8, 26 to 40. Verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. 
and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And actually, one thing about Philip here is he's going to make his home in Caesarea, get married, have four daughters who prophesy. Uh, that's mentioned later, and I think Acts 21, so it does come up later. If you know a little bit about that, that whole uh, reference, this is the same guy, Philip of Caesarea, who's known as Philip the Evangelist. It's kind of cool. He makes a name for himself as a guy who just preaches the gospel to a bunch of people and, and is known kind of by title that way. So, All right, so Acts 8, 26 to 40. Uh, one thing I want to say right off the bat, and this will serve as kind of a front-end bookend of something I'm going to say at the very end, so try to keep this in mind. Uh, and it's also just a big-picture observation that maybe you saw, and I just want to acknowledge this. If we miss it, we miss a lot in Acts 8. And that is, the Spirit, is the Spirit of God is clearly at work here, isn't he? Clearly at work, explicitly uh, and also kind of behind the scenes in terms of working through one of his people. We've been saying throughout this series that Acts is really the Acts of the Holy Spirit, Right? So some of your Bibles say acts of the apostles underneath, like as though it was the actions kind of of God through people. So they emphasize the, the, the apostles, the disciples of Jesus kind of being the actors or the ones kind of performing the actions. We've been saying, as a lot of people do, it's actually really the Holy Spirit who's acting. And this passage really gets at that idea. It's clearly the Spirit, right, who's moving. Yes, using Christians, and it's the same way for us as well. Like we are conduits and we are used as the body of Christ on earth for things just like this. Uh, but it's clearly the Spirit who is working to seek out and, and save people. In fact, Jesus says this uh, in Luke 19, same author. So Luke wrote the book of Acts. So his first volume, the Gospel of Luke, he references how Jesus says this about himself. The Son of Man is Jesus. So he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what is lost. Which is exactly what's happening here, right? And, and, and here's a comforting thought. Those of you who are Christians here today, and, and if you're not, this, this should still comfort you because this is the kind of God we're talking about. And, and I would even say, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but that maybe you're even here because of similar things like this that happen sort of behind the scenes in, in your life and even this morning as you uh, left your house to, to come here. But, but speaking to those of you who are Christians, if you're a Christian today, it's because God did this kind of thing to someone else. He tapped them on the shoulder and he said, go to that one and tell him about me. I love him. Go to that one. She's my daughter. I want her to know about me. I want her to be saved. Like, that's why you're a Christian. 
And it may not have been that miraculous. It may have kind of appeared a bit more mundane to that evangelist or missionary or pastor or friend or parent or sibling or stranger who told you about the gospel. But you, you are saved because God wants you to be. And so the willingness of God is a huge component to this passage that we'll see kind of spread throughout. And so have that in mind as we look at kind of seeing it play out today in different ways, but I want to bookend it with something a little bit later on too. So I'm not going to give that away. Not a big surprise anyway, but I'll give that away. But have this in mind and at least get this too, because if we miss this, we bury, we bury the lead. It's like the headline on page one, and we bury the lead if we miss this simple fact that God wants to save people. He's tapping people on shoulders and saying, that one specifically I want saved. By name, go to him, go to her, tell her about me. This is the same God that we believe in, the God of the rest of the scriptures and the God of Hiawatha Church, the God of our lives. And the Bible says he doesn't change. And so he hasn't changed from this kind of way or characteristic of working. Like God loves you and me way more than we think. Way more, way more. Which is a, a very encouraging thought as well. But again, the lead being Jesus is seeking and saving lost people. All right, so today what I want to do is look at three theological takeaways from this passage. We've been doing this a lot in Acts, framing sermons this way, and it just narrative kind of caters itself to this, and so it fits well. Uh, things that may seem like they don't fit, uh, but they, they really do. They all sort of orbit around the Son of Jesus and the gospel. And so the, the question is, what, what from these theological takeaways do we learn about the good news of Jesus Christ and the character of God being so good and gracious and pursuing in that. So three big things. The first is the gospel comes to an unlikely individual in an unlikely place. And that's specifically looking at the eunuch in Acts 8, but you could slightly rephrase this and say that generally the gospel comes to unlikely individuals in unlikely places and kind of lump us all into that because it's the same for us as well. We'll connect some dots here in a second. But here's why this is important. The setting of Acts 8 itself the way that Luke, the author, essentially narrates this story expresses theology to us. And one giveaway that this is in fact what, what Luke is doing is this guy, the eunuch, isn't named as much as he's described. That's really important too. He's an unnamed guy, and what's more important for Luke is that he's described, and not just who he is and what he's like and what kind of his status is and other things about him, but where he is as well. So again, for Luke, this is history with a theological agenda. History with a theological uh, agenda. And we see it in how he describes and not really caring what his name was. And I think he does this on, on three levels. So we'll talk through these one at a time and make some theological kind of gospel points about them. The first is, the obvious one, he is an Ethiopian, an East African. And so this is the guy who's being saved. And in Acts 8 then, we're getting this first glimpse of how Jesus, by the Spirit, clearly intends the gospel to move out from Jerusalem, and not just to other geographical areas, but other types of people. In this case, non-Jews, and in this case, an African God-fearing man who is on his way home from Jerusalem after worshiping. And so the idea here that the gospel is for those who are far off from Ephesians 2, uh, which quotes Isaiah 50-something, I believe, in, in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a general reference, but uh, it's there. But quoting the Old Testament where it says, God cares about those who are far off. 
And also the theme here that God is caring for those unlikely to be saved is, uh, is a prominent theme and clearly portrayed in this story. And so lots of grace there for people who are just distance-wise, spiritually, geographically, intellectually, emotionally, morally far from God. This story is kind of speaking that, but especially showing it by the way that Luke writes. So again, tons of grace there for people who are far off from God like us, people, people just like us. So that's the first thing is there's this kind of like, who is this guy? And wait a minute, he's not Jewish and he's East African and what's he even doing in Jerusalem? And uh, this is not the pattern we've seen so far generally in the Old Testament, though there are glimpses, but even so far in the book of Acts, something new and expansive is happening here. All right, so that's the first, that's the first piece. The second piece is it happens in a desert place. Verse 26 is kind of odd the way it reads. It's just uh, that the Spirit says, go and talk to this guy, and then it just says, Luke puts this little thing in his little clause. It just says, this is a desert place, which is seemingly inconsequential. Like, thanks, Luke. Didn't need to know that, but, but actually we did. It's pretty important. And so we could talk, we could talk about this a lot. The, thematically, um, the place of, in the role of deserts in the Bible is, pretty, is a pretty prominent thing. But the fact that God's word is nourishing this man in the deserts, God has biblically a, a habit of meeting people in deserts all over the place biblically, literally and figuratively, to save them and nourish them. And that's what we're seeing play out here again as well. And here it actually makes Jesus and his grace, if the desert's the backdrop, it makes Jesus and his grace appear like water, like it nourishes us, like it quenches thirst amidst a desert. In fact, the passage itself does this. It moves narratively from desert to water. It moves from distance from God to closeness with God, from dryness to quenched. That's the whole point. Not just this person's being saved, but that he's moving from a desert place to an oasis, to water, and he's being saved in association with that. So, which fits with tons of things thematically, like maybe the foremost of which is that Jesus calls himself in John 7 uh, like a river that pours forth, forth streams of living water into the hearts of people who believe in him and, and things, related themes like that. Also in Acts 3.20, this is a helpful kind of a touch point because it's already come up in Acts, the same book. In Acts 3.20, it says that being saved from our sins by Jesus is likened to times of refreshing, which sounds like quenching your thirst, doesn't it? Times of refreshing that come, comes from the presence of the Lord. That's like just an, a poetic, another way to talk about what it's like to be saved or what it feels like to be saved or what's happening when we're saved. Our thirst, spiritual thirst, is, is being quenched. And so one thing we learned from this is that even things like the weather and things like biomes can tell us something about the gospel because God owns it all, right? He's the God of all creation. So he made biomes. He made weather. He made deserts. He made tropical areas. He made water. He made thirst for the sake of telling a story. Kind of like an artist saying, I want my painting to reflect something about me and my character. And not just me, but some of my values and my agendas and kind of what I'm doing and what I'm saying in the world. It's kind of like that. God is saying, through things that he has made, I want you to know about my son. I want you to know about my gospel. And why these things even exist is to help tell a physical story of a spiritual reality. 
Jesus' grace is like ice-cold water on a 100-degree Fahrenheit humid day. That's just what it's like. Or for us, like, entrenched in winter right now, that, like, means nothing right now, right? Uh, but for those of us entrenched in winter, which we are, the gospel is like the first perennial that peaks out of the ground in the spring. In both cases, whether it's the perennial or whether it's an ice-cold glass of water or lemonade on a humid day, in both cases, the theme is life from non-life or renewal or resurrection. And so a lot of things in creation, and we see this kind of the way Luke writes here, it kind of hints at this as well, and baptism comes in to image this too, but that there's resurrection motif, there's life amidst dryness and, and death here that Jesus comes to address. Not just to teach us things, but, but to actually save us from death and to save us from old things and worshiping ourselves and from sins and from things that truly separate us, which we'll see kind of play out here in just a minute with this next point. So the third thing is that he is also called a eunuch. So eunuchs come up here and there in the Bible, both testaments. Eunuchs um, were castrated men in the service of a higher official for the most part. And that's um, what's happening here. Sometimes eunuchs could just be like, um, not be castrated, but just kind of be like treasurers of higher officials or something. But, but this guy, um, based off of other things we know about the context and the, the scriptures, I won't go into that uh, for time's sake today, we, we know he was likely a castrated man in the service of this Candace, this, this higher official. So as a eunuch, this is an important thing to understand about the Old Testament. Now, he's a Gentile, a non-Jew, so on one level, just kind of based on who he is uh, ethnically, he couldn't approach God in the temple in Jerusalem as, as much as priests and Jews could. And so he was kept out and kind of kept apart. He could kind of draw near, but not really kind of get into the, like the temple courts of, of God. So on one level, as a Gentile, that's true, but, but also important to understand is that under Old Testament law, he was barred from worshiping God in the inner courts of the temple simply for being castrated and being a, a eunuch. So we see this in one place in Deuteronomy 23.1. It says, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the temple or the assembly of, of the Lord. So this isn't like a cozy verse, obviously, you know. It's probably not going to be someone's life verse or anything, but it's... It's actually, really, it's actually a really, um, strangely, helpful verse, an important verse in context here to know this. Because what this is saying is uncleanliness. Uh, that, that, so there's a bunch of laws in the Old Testament that kind of dealt with being unclean before God. So you could be labeled unclean based off things that happened to you, things you touched, things you did, diseases, um, bleeding, touching dead bodies. Uh, if, you, if you buried a loved one, you'd just, just be unclean. Even though you're not doing anything bad, you'd just be unclean. So this whole kind of food laws, I mean, all kinds of things um, catered and, and gave themselves over to this idea of uncleanliness that were simply meant to demonstrate, like this law, to demonstrate just how pervasive our sin is, our fallenness, our impurity, our cursed nature, how far that had gone. This was the purpose of these kinds of laws. So basically, if you ever read this before, you probably you already know this, but it was impossible not to be unclean at some point in your life based off of like what kinds of things made you unclean. So you were always separated from God. You were always kept out. You were always labeled someone who had to spend time outside the camp and away from God's people and, until your leprosy went away or your bleeding or um, you, know, you just spent some time apart from the thing that you touched that you shouldn't have or ate that you shouldn't have or, or whatever it is. Or it was directly sin-related. A lot of them weren't sin-related though. They were just expressions 
of sin. So the Jews then could see sin with their eyes. If they didn't feel it in their hearts, they could kind of see it, that constantly they were unclean. So with this guy, with the eunuchs, and with this guy in particular, something happened to him with his genitals that permanently kept him away from God. And it wasn't really cutting off testicles, but it was being cut off from God's presence by sin. So I'm just using like castration language there to talk about this is the whole idea, the physical points to the spiritual. Being cut off, this is a biblical word, cut off from God's presence by sin and having like a, a crushed inner sense of holiness, to kind of use a different word for it, that's the problem. Castration showed that, but it wasn't in and of itself evil. It demonstrated that physically uh, to the, the people, the eunuchs, and maybe to their loved ones or to friends or other people who saw them um, kept out. So in that sense, all of us spiritually are eunuchs. If that's really what it means to be a eunuch, then everyone's cut off from God. Everyone's separated from him. Everyone's unclean. And so this guy just happens to be a special picture of it that we can kind of learn fresh lessons from, but, but all of us are, are eunuchs. So, so here's the point. For this type of man, this type of man now, not just a Gentile and an East African, but a eunuch, for this type of man to now be converted and saved and welcome into God's presence, again, where is this happening? For those of you who have been here for the series so far, outside the temple this is happening, which means what symbolically? Apart from the law, right? Apart from the, the, the essence of the, the, the physical center of the Old Testament system, which was the temple, all these good, salvific, spirit-filled, new things are happening outside or apart from the law, like the Ten Commandments, the moral law and the sacrificial laws and ceremonial laws, one of which was Deuteronomy 23, 23.1, but many kinds of laws. For this guy to be saved outside the law now by grace, this is hugely significant. And it's interesting this, that he's reading from Isaiah 53 because three chapters later, which he may have gone to, we don't know this for sure, Philip did flip three pages or four pages later, whatever it was, to this. He, he, I, think, I like to think he probably did, but, um, but it's interesting. In context, eunuchs are addressed right in Isaiah. And so in Isaiah 56, it says, and I'll pull out a few things here, it says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs, I will give a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So notice the castration language there at the end. So he's trying to speak to eunuchs with a particular issue. All right, so now here's the question. We could spend all day on this. This is a great prophecy of hope and promise to foreigners. And on top of that, eunuchs, so kind of this, this doubly separated from God kind of state. All right, which is all true for all of us, but specifically physically for certain types of people, it's hope. A lot to say here, but here's the question I want to ask theologically for today's purposes. And that is, how is God going to do this? How does he eventually do it? Especially when one of God's very own laws, which we'll go back to here, Deuteronomy 23.1, one of God's very own laws say the opposite. Eunuchs can't come close. Then later he says, eunuchs are going to come close. Well, what changes? It seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Eunuchs cannot come close to me, they're unclean. And yet here it's saying, eunuchs will come close. Their status will change from eunuch 
to son or daughter. They will be my people. They'll be welcomed at my table. I will save them. We'll have a new status. Do you, do you see the difference in the tension wrapped up in the Old Testament? It's like God is breaking his own commands or breaking his own laws. And in fact, that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to change the system entirely and break Deuteronomy 23.1 for the sake of the new thing of, of Jesus Christ. And so that gives you a teaser in terms of where we're headed. Um, these next two sections will flush that out. So if we ask the question how, let's start by looking at what Philip looked at with the eunuch. Uh, on, the, on the chariot. And that is the, so we'll talk about the importance here of Isaiah chapter 53. The whole section here, if you haven't read it before, or if you have, obviously, go back and read it again. But especially if you haven't, it's 52.13 to 53.12. That's the whole section. There are two verses, though, that, that Luke pulls out from Acts, uh, or in Acts 8, from Isaiah 53, uh, that we'll, we'll highlight. But, but two quick things I want to talk about here before we move on that are just quick asides, but I I love because the things that he says, the eunuch says, and, and Philip responds with, help us with our approach to the Bible, just quite simply. Some of you might be brand new to the Bible, and uh, all of us have kind of had these same questions on some level. I have, still do. Um, and so um, hopefully you'll feel that, and it kind of speak to you where you're at too, but wherever you're at. These two things I think are helpful interpretationally. The first thing is, when Philip says, do you know what you're reading? It's kind of a great question. Do you understand? Which in Isaiah, it's, it's a really hard book too. You know, so it's kind of like, I get that with Isaiah. You know, like, do you understand what Isaiah is saying? Like, basically, if you flip around Isaiah and close your eyes and point, um, like, I'd appreciate someone asking me that. You know, I could say, well, no, not really. Could you just tell me the answer, you know? So Isaiah is a really tough book. Aletha and I just got done reading it. Uh, we spent two months in it, just slowly reading it, and it's tough sledding. Uh, it's a great book, but... Uh, so it's funny we came across this because I was, I was thinking, um, I don't know what I'm reading sometimes. But um, anyway, what this helps us see here, though, are two things. One, the importance of teaching. Okay, so God obviously cares about teachers, preachers, prophets, encouragers, on, on any level. So all of us uh, can do this. This is not just for pastors. He cares about teaching the Word. He cares about using people to grant clarity to difficult passages to people who can't understand. He's just chosen to make this the means by which he enlightens and pulls up the veil and blows the fog away, the haze away from things that are difficult to understand. And so it validates that. So I think of like dozens of other places where teachers are mentioned and used, right? This would fit narratively with that whole idea. That's the first thing. Second thing is, it speaks to how Jesus grants clarity to difficult prophetic passages. Again, Isaiah is a tough book. And without Christ, it doesn't make sense. Without Jesus, Isaiah will not make sense like it's not making sense for the eunuch. Jesus is the great clarifier. He's like the, the red-tinted glasses that you read the codes in the back of cereal boxes. Like he's the one that lets you read and see. That's, oh, that's it. I couldn't quite see. I could kind of see and cheat a little bit, but I couldn't quite understand Put the, we put the glasses on, we can get the, the code, essentially, or the message or the oracle, and it makes sense. And we can say the same thing with the Bible. Like, without Christ and his sufferings and his gospel, the Bible as a whole doesn't make sense. And so we just get a sense for that here with how these two are interacting. The second thing is, um, when he says, is this about Isaiah himself or about someone else? Which, again, is a great question to ask about a passage. Like, who is the author writing about is this passage ultimately about the, the human author? 
or is it about someone else? And when he says that question, he's getting at, without realizing it probably at this point, but he's getting at a core hermeneutical or interpretational principle. And that is the Bible is not about us. It's for us, but not ultimately about us. Or really the human authors at all, at least ultimately. Rather, it's about Jesus. And we'll see this play out yet again today um, with the next uh, section. But before that, let's dive into the prophecy itself for a few minutes, uh, more about it, and again, two verses here. But Isaiah 53, um, I may have said this, but it's a prominent passage in Christian theology. It's a frequently quoted, alluded to part of Isaiah in the New Testament that teaches how exactly God was going to save us from the vantage point of before Christ or B.C., so looking ahead, how God was ultimately going to save us. So the, the tension within Isaiah 56, how are eunuchs going to be called sons and daughters? The answer is three chapters before in Isaiah 53. How is he going to undo the problem of separation? The answer is Isaiah 53, through the suffering of a suffering servant, it's called in, in context there. So one who would come to suffer, ultimately referring to Jesus and ultimately referring to his crucifixion. That's the remedy. All right, so starting at the end, we'll talk about a couple of things here, but at the, at the end first, it says, his life, speaking about Jesus, was taken away from him, justice was denied him, which gets at this really clear but core Christian belief that Jesus was judged unjustly when he was crucified because he was perfect, didn't deserve it. He was judged unjustly while we were spared in love. Or in other words, just simply, Jesus died for us. So we say for our sins, but for us, and it's for our benefit as well. So that's the first piece. Then go up to the top. It says, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he, Jesus, opens not his mouth. And so on one level, Jesus fulfills this verse by, remember if you've read this before um, in his defense or in his arrest and during his trial before Pilate and Herod, he actually fulfills this verse by at times choosing not to answer the questions that he was asked. And so literally, he's fulfilling what's being explicitly predicted here is a, a Savior's coming who would not talk when maybe you think he should or would at times. So on one level, he, he's literally fulfilling this in the New Testament where it says Jesus didn't speak. And Pilate's like, I have the authority to crucify you. Why don't you just say something and defend yourself? He chose to be silent. All right, so on one level, uh, that's the case. On another less obvious theological level, though, Jesus' silence communicated his willingness to go to the cross for us. Jesus' silence communicated his willingness to go through all of his sufferings, to fulfill this, and to go to the cross for us, dying so that we can live. And if it helps, think about if it were the other way. Think about if Jesus was during his arrest, or during his trial, or during his flogging, or when he was presented before the people, or even when he's carrying his cross to Calvary, think if he was talking a lot during that time. Like picture a chattering Jesus as he's doing all of that. What if he was talking a lot and defending himself? What if Jesus was complaining during that time? What if he was screaming over and over again, I'm innocent! What would that communicate about him and the whole event? It would communicate, well, lots of things, but at the core, unwillingness, right? Unwillingness 
to go through it. It would communicate an arm twisting, like I don't want to, but I'm kind of forced into this. And so this is what we're left with, just the simple math here, is silence equals willingness, which equals love. That's why this prophecy is so important. Not just that he happened to be a guy who was kind of, um, who didn't speak a lot, and he was uh, less on words at times in his ministry. That's a piece to it. It's more of a direct dot-to-dot connection there. But also to communicate the idea that Jesus' death would not be a transaction, but be an expression of love. Willingness is a huge piece to the prophecy and a huge piece, actually, to Acts 8, and a huge piece to what the eunuch is coming to understand about God before he believes the gospel. That it's not just a transaction. Uh, it's, it's the act or the actions of a willing, loving Savior who fought our battles and who died that we might live. All right, so that's the... Um, that's the, basically the first piece to this, actually the whole piece to Isaiah 53. It's really fascinating, maybe to you, but to me this week I was just re- remembering this and how fascinating it is that this is what God had him read. Like he just happened to be reading it, right? It's like of all the passages in Isaiah, uh, this is the one clearly by God's design he had open that Philip heard him reading out loud and then went to uh, run to explain it to him. So this is the text the eunuch happened to be reading, and I think one thing I want to mention before this last section is notice the contrast between Deuteronomy 23 and Isaiah 53. So Deuteronomy 23 was the castration verse, um, that separation from God verse, and then Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant verse. And with this guy's story in mind, I mean, you literally have someone who is, by the law, kept from God. The law kept him away, literally. It prevented him actively from drawing close to God. On the other side, in terms of Jesus' death and what it's doing for him, Jesus' death did the opposite, right? It brought him near, and before that, it pursued him to save him. There's meant to be a huge stark contrast here between grace and works, spirit and law. And so when you see Deuteronomy 23.1, don't, you know, don't think that's a, that's a type of law that differentiates from the Ten Commandments. The law is one package, one covenantal package. Like, you can't separate it all out. Deuteronomy 23 is reminding us of other laws that themselves, too, even more moral ones, keep us from God because they can't be kept. They heighten the problem, the Bible says, of of law. They, they, They heighten the fact that we're all eunuchs. They heighten the fact that we're all foreigners. They heighten the fact that we're not God's people. They heighten the fact that we're, to our core, evil and rotting corpses in a tomb. And so then we look for another solution. In this case, it's presented on a platter before this eunuch saying, here's the solution, and it's in the Old Testament. He's reading about rejection, which leads to salvation. He's reading about Jesus' crucifixion, which solves that problem, that tension of these types of people being separated from God. So it's all the law, not just some law about testicles, but it's the entirety of the law that separates us from God, but the Spirit brings us close. Okay, last piece, the relationship between Philip and other biblical prophets. Uh, A couple quick things here, could spend all day on this, but one of the more intentional connections Luke is making here, biblically, theologically, kind of thematically, between Philip and other biblical prophets, maybe some of you saw this as I was reading it, or you just know this, but is between Philip and Elijah. The Old, uh, the Old Testament prophet 
who ministered in like the 700s uh, BC, roughly, uh, whose protege was Elisha, uh, who was taken up, remember that, in water and didn't experience death. If you guys have read this before, um, had the standoff with uh, Jezebel, basically, and uh, the, the uh, prophets of Baal, and um, trash talked the idols and said they were peeing themselves, essentially, when they should have been showing up and showing their power. It's just a great thing. Anyway, you should read that if you haven't read that before. But this is the guy. Anyway, that's the guy. If you've heard any of that stuff before, this is, that, that's the guy. And the connections here that Luke is making are uh, fivefold. Both Elijah and Philip minister in Samaria. Both passages mention chariots. And by the way, uh, 2.12 there, 2 Kings 2.12 is the story in a context when Elijah is taken up from the river. So at the end of his life, he's swept away by the Spirit in water. And Elisha, his protege, his disciple, is kind of left with his cloak, if you remember that story too. But anyway, both are ministering in Samaria. Both mention chariots. Both take place near and in water. Both men are taken away by the Spirit and both mention the phrase, literally and verbatim, saw him no more. So a clear, direct connection uh, that Luke is making, unavoidable between Philip, this prophetic guy, and, and Elijah. The big question is why? And it's actually kind of a tough, it's tough, it's a tough one to answer. It's easier sometimes elsewhere in the scriptures. This is a tougher one to answer. But on one level, it simply says that Philip, as a Christian, is like a prophet, like Elijah. And all of us are, in a way, too, who are in Christ and filled with the Spirit. We have a prophetic ministry in that we speak the word of the Lord, which is what Elijah did, and now our word is the gospel. It's the final word of God. The last word is Jesus, the Bible says, so we speak that word over and over again prophetically to each other in big and small ways. All right, but Philip is like that here, too, just in kind of special, miraculous ways as well. On another level, though, it's where it gets kind of confusing, but Philip is also reminiscent, not just of Elijah, but Jesus, too who himself is the ultimate Elijah-like prophet in the Bible and also led by the Spirit out of the water after his baptism like Philip is uh, here too. So so basically in your mind, it's kind of trippy here, but draw a line from Elijah to Jesus, so Old to New Testament, Elijah to Jesus, and then from Philip back to Jesus. So this is kind of the uh, theological flowchart of Acts 8. Jesus is in the center, Elijah looks ahead to him, and Philip resembles him as well and points back to him with his activities and his words. And actually, there should, should be one more arrow kind of from Philip back to Elijah because this is why Philip can kind of resemble Elijah as well because they're all connected. They're all prophets. Jesus is just the, the, the peak or the, the top of, of the mountain. So the flow chart of the Bible really always ends in Jesus. Like if you had a, a cool, fancy flow chart, one of you guys should do this. No one's done this before, but um, it'd be a great project. The flow chart of the Bible always ends up with Jesus. It's like, he, like all the arrows, you know, start with whatever character, whatever event. They all kind of weave around. They all, they all end with Jesus. That's kind of what this is trying to get at. That's why it's confusing because, well, which is it? Is he Elijah or Jesus? Well, it's kind of both, but that's because it's all about him. And so really then, in a roundabout way, we find ourselves having come full circle to where we started today, noting how clearly, remember how I started, how clearly the Spirit is guiding this whole thing and how really it's a story then not about Philip, but about Jesus, the ultimate prophet or word of God or Elijah and the fulfillment of all prophecies, whether Isaiah's prophecy or Elijah himself as a man, what he said but also what he did, and also in a way Philip. In other words, 
Philip then, with this idea, this biblical idea in mind, shows us how Jesus pursues us, how Jesus sits down with us in the desert of our lives, or with us pulls up the veil of disclarity between us and the Bible, or with us or to us preaches the good news and then baptizes and saves us. So Philip is kind of like we've seen so many times in Acts already, is a shadow as a Christian man. Um, he's a shadow of Christ, which makes perfectly logical sense if we know, right, that the Bible says we are the body of Christ on earth. We'd expect that generally that would be the case, but to see so specifically that he's doing explicitly Jesus-like things and doing them in Jesus-like ways, the point here is to say something theological to us by way of that history. This goes back to how I started. The point is not history. It's theology by way of, by way of history. And so then where we get to is this idea here. The idea that Philip ran to the eunuch is not some inconsequential part of the story. Because on one level, who cares that Philip ran? It's not important. With Philip, it only mattered that he got to the chariot, that he got to the eunuch. But with Jesus, the manner by which he comes to us matters. You see the difference? With Philip, it's inconsequential. But with Jesus, it means everything. The manner by which he saves matters. Not just the matter of salvation, but the manner by which he does the matter. Anyway, it, is ma it matters to us. And so remember, uh, back in Luke, also, this is also the same author, so I want to mention this, because I think he has this in mind. The parable of the prodigal son, or the two lost sons, different titles for it, but in Luke 15, remember that story, those of you who have read that, how... In this parable, Jesus says the rebellious son, after squandering his father's inheritance and rebelling and sinning and hating him, against him and hating him, goes away and, and spends it all and, and rejects his dad. And then he comes home broken and poor, having lost everything. Remember how it says as he's coming home and his father sees him, how it says while he was still a long way off, the son, his father, who represents God here, saw him and felt compassion and for him and ran towards him and embraced him and kissed him. And then he threw a party because he was so happy to have him back. I mean, remember that? And in this story, I mean, this is, this is like the point to this is Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like this, like the God of the Bible, the God of the universe. This is his character. He has this type of pursuing, running towards you love that Philip resembles and that the father in this parable also resembles. Luke wrote both of them. So here's the idea. Acts 8 doubles down on this idea. Acts chapter 8 doubles down on this idea. Remember how we began, how the Spirit desired to save particular people, and how it also said here in Acts 8.32, like a sheep was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth, and how that too pointed to his willingness to die for us, so does Philip's running. Philip's running and Isaiah's prophecy both point us to the one who said, when asked if he would heal, he said in Mark 1.41, I am willing. I'm not just able, but the Son of God himself has said this in history, and he is saying this to us through Acts 8 right now in this very room. 
that to you all and me, he's not just able to heal you, he's willing. If that doesn't blow our mind, then um, maybe read it again. Or maybe pray and say, God, make that blow my mind. Because that should blow our minds. Blow our minds. Because none of us have been loved that way before. On, on lesser reflective ways, on a human basis, for sure, that can happen. But not on the deliverance from sins. Not, not on this kind of way. No one's been crucified for you before. No one's given them their, their body and their strength and their suffering and their rejection and their, um, all of that stuff, their humiliation. No one's done that for you or me. No one has ever, human's ever done that except God. God is better. And these passages like this are not just preaching, they're showing. Philip's running is reminiscent of Jesus's. When you see Philip running, you should think, that's my savior. Not Philip, but the one he represents. He's, he's a type of Christ. He's a shadow of Christ in this passage. The point is Jesus, not Philip. He's not the hero. The fact that he runs doesn't matter compared to the fact that Jesus ran, right? To us. And that, that's the whole point. You know, the, the next time, you know, think about this image. The next time you doubt your salvation or get bored with the faith or think there's something you can do to save yourself or maybe you picture God more as a boss than a father or just as you sin, I mean, this is why it matters on a day-to-day basis. Like, our joy is at stake. The Bible never says, run to God. Did you know that? The Bible never commands us to run to God as if he's waiting for us. Running's a part of, of the Bible, and we're called to run from things like the devil and flee from sin and run to the refuge of God in a way poetically in the Psalms. So it, it, we see stuff like that, but the idea of running to God as though he's waiting for us, is not a biblical idea. God never waits for you. He always calls us to wait for him. Do you see the difference? This can be kind of an offensive, humbling thing, but it's, really, it's, a, it's a very gospel idea to get. When we say that God is waiting for us, what do we imply? We imply that we have things to work on, right? We have things to clean up in our lives. He's waiting for us to kind of get things in order. So it implies morality is the key, that it's the bullseye, that the Ten Commandments and law-keeping and doing good in Christ's name is the key. That's what we get at. Whether we believe that or, or, or truly believe that or truly saying that or not, that's the whole idea. That's why the Bible never says God's waiting for you. Instead, it commands us to wait for God which says the opposite, right? When, when the point is we wait for God, the point is we wait for him to come into the world to do that. And until he does, we have no hope whatsoever. We wait for him to show up in the ways that he wants to. We wait for him to say, this is the only way to be saved. I love you. Receive it. Like the eunuch in the chariot, right? Did the eunuch get off of his chariot and pursue Philip? Did he do that? then why do we think that we do that to God? If the eunuch didn't do it to Philip, why in the world do we live as though we get off our chariots in our desert places and go find God and pursue him and do good for him? That's why these passages matter. It's, the point isn't evangelize well like Philip. I mean, do that. I should do that. We should do that. That's great. Let's talk about that. That's not the point, though. The point is you and I are the eunuch. We're not Philip. The, the, Jesus is, Philip is like Jesus in, in, in this passage. Like in the parable, the father represents 
God. We're not, the, we're not dad. We're the son. What we say about those things matters and dictates whether or not we get really bad theology and broken Christian theology or we get truth. All of that together is the gospel of Acts 8. And it's also the gospel of Isaiah 53. And every other passage in the Bible, whether explicit or implicit, God has run towards us in love to save us from our worst nightmares. Believe, like the eunuch, in the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized and be saved. We pray for us. Father, thank you for this passage. It's a tough one. Thank you for the way you wrote it into the Bible, how just beautiful it is, how carefully written it is, how much about you it is, how much it tells us about your character, how much it explicitly and implicitly tells us about the centrality of the suffering of the Son of God that we need to believe in to be saved. Just love how, God, you chose this passage to show that the eunuch went from not being a Christian to seeing the death of Jesus was necessary to save me to then becoming a Christian. I mean, what, what stands in between his conversion is belief that the Son of God died for him. So we're, we can be totally clear, wherever we're at spiritually today, Christian or not, we can be clear on what is the most important thing. What do we need to know? What do we have to trust in? So God, help us to believe in the gospel of Acts 8 that you ran to us, didn't walk, you ran to us in our distress and you saved us in the desert places of, of sin of castration, of being cut off, of being separated from you geographically, intellectually, spiritually, morally. Uh, you sought us out. Like Jesus, you say yourself in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Praise be to God, that's the case there in Luke 19 and also in Acts 8 and also in Minneapolis in 2019 because you've done that and you are doing that every day in our city. We pray for more of it. In your name we pray, amen.